in two days, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming March 14th, only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week we're back up at the wall with Jon Snow, and I brought on one of my favorite people to talk about Jon with, and that's Arthur Jamfa. Sometimes I give Arthur an email when there's some big event that happens in the plot. I like to get his take on it, and he always has an interesting perspective. The other thing I like about Arthur is that he is not shy about disagreeing with me when I have a pet theory on a disputed plot point. Steve and I continue our rewatch of season six and talk about the return of Rickon. Without further ado, here is Arthur Jamfa. Arthur I think that maybe with this particular chapter, I'm just going to jump right into the synopsis. Yeah, okay. Tuesday. John and Sam have gone north of the Wall with Lord Mormont and his rangers. They have stopped to study the bodies of two men, formerly in Benjen's company. After Riker suggests that the men have been dead for only a day, Sam objects. He suggests that the blood of the men is dry, like black dust and there's no blood spatter on the ground below them. Even more odd, no animals will go near them except for Ghost. Mormont decides to bring the bodies back to the wall. Once returned, John learns that the king is dead, and that his father has been accused of treason. Even though Mormont tries to comfort him with wine and wisdom, most others simply stare at him. He overhears Alistair Thorne call him the bastard of a traitor, at this, John moves to attack him with a dagger. His friends hold him back so that Alistair survives. But the foolish act lands John locked and guarded in a room. That night, he follows Ghost out of the room and finds that his guard is dead. John and Ghost climb the steps to Mormont's room where they find and fight Othor's corpse, who has waked from the dead. After much slicing and choking, John burns the corpse. So, Arthur Jumpa, what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about a character, a plot point, a theme, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? Um, I think I think I've become addicted to ladder of chaos. So, um, well, then you we start... take the first. Yeah, you take the first topic for sure. Yeah, I'll take the first rung, and I think I want to start not with the obvious. I want to start with Samuel Tali because there's a lot of talk about Samuel Tali being the best character, as in is he the nicest? Is he the most? More, you see, there's a lot of big claims about Samuel Tali going well, around. Here's, and yes, I think we should and here's the claim that I make it's okay. normally in reaction, it's always a reaction yes. to this common statement that Martin doesn't write black or white characters, but he only writes gray characters. Yes, and I always think, like, that's such a simplification. 
I mean, I agree. Uh, certainly there are really evil characters, and certainly there are really good characters. And, of course, the example I always trot out is, is Sam, right? Mm-hmm. And you're now you're going to nuance my nuance. Well, yes, I'm going to nuance your nuance because that's what we do at <laughs> that's universities. What is, that's what this podcast does. That's what this podcast is all about. Um, yeah, but I don't... I mean, there's a lot of claims about how great um, he is. Um, but, I mean, is he? Because if we break it down, um, we look at where he came from, what he does, I don't think he has an opportunity to get power or to really do anything. To me, you can't, someone who is incompetent and <laughs> doesn't have the opportunity. I mean, I love Sab, right? But if he doesn't have the opportunity to be evil, we can't really be like, oh, he's a good guy because he hasn't done a good action. He's just done nothing. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> In my heart. this is a very... Being harsh. He is brave. This is a very interesting take. And I think that you are taking this chaos too seriously. <laughs> because I feel like you've eschewed all logic. <laughs> uh, so are you saying that, that he simply doesn't have the opportunity to make moral choices? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he has the opportunity to show us that he's evil. I think you're so wrong on this. Mm, interesting. I mean, I think of morality in a different way, I suppose. I feel like every person has, you know, 99 opportunities in a day to make moral choices, even if they're very small choices. And, of course, he's this mm-hmm. is a character in a story, right? So we only see certain... And he's not even a POV character. So we only see certain opportunities for choice. But, you know, what are what are some things that Sam could have done that you know where it could have gone wrong i i suppose the onus is on me to f- try to give you an example of this and i'm not i'm not thinking of one right now no i mean i i can say that um i think i think there's a lot of examples where he helps out with john and um he takes a risk there but uh-huh. and on that point i would argue that he doesn't really have a choice because it's death or john he is linked mm-hmm. to John. And so John, I think, is a deeply moral character, right? And we can go to, we're going to talk about John anyway. And I, I, I have so much to say about John, but I think in his own survival, when he knows his own survival is linked to John, he actually keeps acting in the benefit of John and whatever John tells him to do. And I think that's what makes him look like the deeply mm-hmm. moral character that I don't think he's proven that he is. Mm-hmm. But, I think that there's something about Sam's loyalty to John that makes it sort of is this mm. this great banner of his morality sort of his sigil is I'm loyal to John he's a person without a sigil but at this point because he's been disowned by his father but if he had a sigil it would be like John's face with a heart around it no <laughs> <laughs> He really does return John's love in that way. You know, he says, I'm going to eschew the religion of my birth and go worship John's gods. And if John says something, I'm going to back John up. And if John is feeling upset because he didn't get to be a ranger, I'm going to give him a little nugget of wisdom that's going to make him feel better. So I think in all of those ways, I think he's choosing 
to be true to his banner. Maybe Martin doesn't put him in these sort of moral forks like he does with other characters. Mm-hmm. Like we always see Ned, Ned's entire narrative is this moral fork. Like, Yes. No, I think, I think he doesn't. Um, and and so, I, you, so you're saying because he's not in those situations, maybe our love for Sam is a little bit naive. Well, I guess I here's here's how I how I see outstanding morality, right? Because it's there is there is saying Sam's a good guy, and I agree. Right? Uh-huh. And then they're saying he is the most moral guy in this book, or he's the the uh-huh. nicest person. Um, and here's how I I see outstanding morality as would I do it. Right, would I run into this burning? I mean, this is obviously a, a cliche, right? But would I run to this burning building and take out this pug? Well, I wouldn't because I wouldn't die. But this guy is an extremely moral guy, and he decides that he is worth worth the risk. I don't feel like with Sam Tarly that in his space I wouldn't have done what he did, right? Or that uh, someone mm, mm. with neutral morality wouldn't have done what he did because I see his loyalty to John mm-hmm. as something that makes emotional sense and that's tied, tied to his own survival. And I don't see what else he would have done, right? I mean, unless I he see. was making an evil action, but it doesn't strike me as like extremely moral. Whereas when I look at, at John, if we're going to transition to him, I'm thinking, well, he's doing things I would never have done. He's taking risks for more reasons that I wouldn't have done. But well, I guess okay. It's I, no, I, I think I, you, yeah, I think that we've sort of found a middle ground on this. You, ever the mm-hmm. centrist... Uh, you, you've, you you coaxed me a little bit a little bit closer to your force of gravity in this case. I like that conversation because I do feel like, well, I do think that Sam in some ways is a stand-in for Martin. Like I think a lot of mm-hmm. in a lot of ways Tyrion is a stand-in for Martin. But I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think Martin, as as a lot of good authors will do, is he'll write himself into a lot of characters. Yes, yes. But it'll be specific aspects of these characters. And I think that he sort of has gifted Sam with some of the things that he's most uncomfortable about himself. Mm -hmm. But... Sam also is very smart, right? And he's he's a very very bookish and he can like you say, he can be brave in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Um can I can I ask you this? Have you ever written fiction? I'm trying. I've often tried. I've I've started several projects. I'm just into a project now that I intend to finish. It's a very different you know, for some, I, I've written a lot of books, but it's a very different process. And I have started to feel certain sympathy for Martin, you know, trying to take this massive epic landscape and mm. bring it to conclusion. I, I realize how difficult that is, even with a simple story. But um, wh- why do you ask? Are you writing yourself with the characters? And if so, what they look like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, right. Uh, that's a good question. Yes, and then I realize that I'm doing it, and then I try to hold back a little bit here and there if I feel like I'm doing it mm. too much or doing it without reflection or something like that. I do want to talk about yeah. uh, zombies. So you ready to talk about zombies? Yes. So this chapter, it's interesting the way it's situated because – the book has sort of fooled you into thinking that all of the juice 
you know, all of the interesting details, all of the interesting plot is in the South now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, uh, you know, Rob is about to ride South and Kat has captured Tyrion in the South and Tyrion has escaped in the South and all of Ned's plot is in the South. Mm-hmm. So it's like the North is being drained of plot. And even in this chapter, you kind of get this little sleight of hand where it's like, actually, John's John was worried about the corpses and he's worried about Benjen. But when he hears that his father's been accused of treason, now his all of his mind is is going south. True. And then by the end of this chapter, you realize, no, this book has tricked me. The real plot is north of the wall, mm. and Asha is about you know Asha is about to remind us of this in the next chapter. Mm-hmm. But until this point, we've been fooled into thinking that all of the interesting plot is happening in the South. And I think that it's because we really haven't seen a whole lot of supernatural in this book yet. The only thing that we got that's that's seemingly supernatural, you know, definitively supernatural so far, are these others that we meet in the prologue, right? And now we finally meet a zombie in this chapter, and you realize this is not a detective novel. This is a fantasy novel. <laughs> or this is a horror novel or something. Anyway, I thought that it was a very effective little magic trick. It's effective, but I guess the question is, why is he doing it this way, Martin? Because he could he, he opens with this. He's not trying to build in. He's, he's not trying to build intrigue on if this will be supernatural, right? So we know there will be some supernatural. We know, but, but he's made the Southern politics so interesting that it's kind of somewhere in the back of our mind, but mm-hmm. it's not the thing that's most interesting so far in this book. So it's not necessarily that he's sort of revealing something new. It's like a magician. He's made us interested in the wrong hand enough mm. so that when he brings in the trick... We have been sufficiently fooled, and we're you know happy to go along with it, you know, just like a, an audience for a magician will be willing to go along with it. But maybe you weren't fooled. I I don't I don't think I wasn't fooled. I think I uh, read the book after um, I watched the first episode of Game of Thrones. Actually, I was doing it at the same time, and I of course oh, yeah yeah I knew course. about what was going to happen. Um, well, it's not like I didn't know it was going to happen. It's just that when I'm immersed in the narrative, of course, I can kind of suspend my future knowledge just to sort of appreciate what's going on in the story right then and there. Mm. Yeah, I guess I experienced it as like a Dora the Explorer moment <laughs> where there's <laughs> like, where is the white? And I'm like, it's there, it's in front of you. He's got blue eyes. What, you idiots. So, yeah, it's kind of like the characters catching up with what you already know, which is fine. Sure, it's good. Can we go back to the zombies? Because I have a lot of opinions yeah. about zombies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, was, I was having a conversation with zombies with my friends, and I realized that the, con- the conception of how zombies function is very important. Because, so we, the question was, if you had a zombie apocalypse, what kind of zombies would you have, right? And... I was saying that I want traditional zombies um, that eat brains, uh, come out of 
um, <laughs> like thriller style. They only I don't want no brainwashing virus nonsense. None of that. That's too modern. I wanted them to, to, to come out of the grave yeah. to eat brains, but then I realized that wouldn't work because they're really sort quite... of a, a zombie purist. Well, like... yeah, exactly, exactly. I had to like to think myself of, of, like the Puritan of the zombie world. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and okay. I just realized that that would not work because the zombies, there was firstly not enough of them. And then they would just yeah. kind of wander around quite slowly because they're not running. No zombies run. Okay, again, again, it's nonsense. Yeah. Against my purest mindset. So I think it's it's an interesting choice of how you how you make your zombies. and how you decide So you have a problem with Othor, I think, is what you're saying, because Othor is not a traditional zombie. Othor, it seems, knows to seek out Lord Mormont and go for the head of the organization. That's how I'm reading this. Like, oh, like Othor is sort of playing, he's playing possum. Do you guys have that phrase in France and England, playing possum? In England, yes. In France, no. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, anyway, he's pretending to be a dead person, mm-hmm. and and he gets snuck into the the wall. And when he wakes up, he doesn't just start eating brains of anyone in sight. He's specifically going to Lord Mormont's room. Hmm. So there, this is not a traditional zombie. This is a strategic zombie. And we find out elsewhere in the book that. Sometimes, you know, men will go out, become zombies, and then come back to their home and try to, like, do zombie violence on their wives. So there's something about, there's something about, I don't know, the sentinel mind that isn't completely eclipsed in these zombies. Or they're just pawns in some sort of mastermind... White Walker is sort of controlling them. Are you trying to make a moral case for the whites, saying that we should <laughs> we should give them rights that they're misunderstood? We need to rehabilitate <laughs> need to the whites, <laughs> Arthur. Come on. <laughs> Maybe we've judged them too harshly. <laughs> they just they need a Norwegian style of prison rehabilitation. Has anyone tried um, to talk a white out of it? That's the real because we the whole time we, yeah. we were just at war with the whites. Did we actually just did like, oh, do you want a territory night king? Sure. <laughs> like, that's all he wanted is a kingdom. He wanted the eighth kingdom. Uh yeah. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. It's always kind of like made me think, oh no, these aren't these are zombies in the way that I can recognize them as zombies, but they're certainly not your Arthur Jump uh, uh, purity zombies. Yeah, 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 and I think that's so. Does that make you like you? Does that make you like this a little bit less? Um, I, I yes, I mean slightly. But on the other hand, I would also say <laughs> that it makes me slightly a bit more. So I think it levels out. Um, because I I think it's appropriate to the scene. Right, we have. This is ult- ultimately there's a lot of political intrigue and there's a lot of crime intrigue. And it's a very like mm-hmm. the interpersonal relationships. These things matter a lot in this book. And so if you had just mindless zombies, if you didn't have 
they have a king and they have an army and each mm-hmm. of the whites actually can think individually and kind of remember what happened before. This means that we can have white spies and you can have white generals. And I think that's important because otherwise it would make them utterly boring compared to even, even if they were a massive threat, there wouldn't be enough to make them interesting. Well, and I guess here's the other thing about this is that there is something akin to what happens with John eventually. Mm-hmm. He's brought back to life. He's, there's something about him that is undead. He's lost some of his humanity. Mm. And yet he's recognizably Jon Snow, at least in the series. Right. And you could probably say the same thing with Lady Stoneheart, right? So she's something that's undead. Mm-hmm. And yet she's recognizably sort of a vengeance monster who <laughs> thinks strategically. So whatever's going on with these zombies is not unlike what happens to these other characters. Mm. Um, so what if it differentiates them? Is it because Lady Stoneheart and John can talk? So there so we have to remember that there's sort of this ice magic and fire magic, right? Right. At least so, in the series, John is brought back by the fire magic. Yes. So it could be the rules are a little bit different. But we do have, like, for instance, uh, there's this character that they call Cold Hands. Mm-hmm. who like, rides a big elk, and he helps Gilly and Sam escape. And he seems to be something that's undead. Mm-hmm. And yet he's sort of trying to help the living in some way, in a way that that seems to be at odds with the zombie pawns on the chessboard. Okay, so I've come to the conclusion that they're not zombies, that they're some kind of undead life form. But yeah. I guess what makes them dangerous is that they're aggressive and want to eradicate all humans, but maybe they have some kind of... They're not quite zombie-like. Right? All right, they're not quite zombies. However, they're definitely dead. Mm-hmm. They look dead. Right. They eat brains. Well, anyway, they there are certain in certain ways that they present as zombies, uh, yes. but clearly the rules are different. They don't know about viruses; they know about magic, right? So mm. this is a magical zombie for some. I don't know if that helps. So yeah, and I think it takes a lot of creativity, and it's very well. I think what what Martin's doing is very smart, right? He's he's using the the zombie trope, but he's kind of adapting it as well wonderfully. I think so. So Mormont at one point says something to John. It's in the context of John finding out about, you know, the king's dead and your father's been accused of a traitor. Mm-hmm. And Mormont says something that really caught my attention. He says, mm-hmm. the things that we love destroy us. Remember that. Mm. And I thought, this is exactly what happens to Mormont. You know, he's devoted his life to the Night's Watch. And eventually, and he so he loves the the Night's Watch, and eventually the Night's Watch will destroy him. So I thought that was a nice little foreshadowing of the the Lord Mormont demise. It's also what happened to Mormont before this, right? With his son, he's he's here because partly because mm-hmm. his son betrayed him, right? Yeah, that's right. That's um, right. and is it potentially? past the books what might happen to john 
No, this is exactly what happens to John. Yeah, uh, the way that the way that dance ends is that we find out. That oh yeah, the, the yeah. Night's Watch kills John too, right? True, and I guess I was I, I was thinking of um, Daenerys, but yes, also that's that's true. Right, and I guess the other thing you could say with John is that he's fallen in love with sort of the free folk culture, right? True. He wants to save the the free folk. Very literally, he's fallen in love with Ygritte, right? Mm. And this is this has made him something. He's sort of embracing his first men roots. So he's fallen in love with that, and then of course, bringing them south of the wall is probably what gets him killed in the end. So I think that that's it. Could it, you could read that in a number of ways? What were you saying about Danny? You, you, were, you were making a point about Danny. Yeah, yeah. I was I was saying that perhaps the same thing happens to Danny where he falls in love with Danny. And uh, um, so this is a past of books, right? Right. But I'm sure, guessing sure, sure. the idea is that is that his ultimate love, he'll have to, he'll have to, he'll have to. You'll have. To, she falls that. in love with him, and then she betrays he'll her. Kill her. But she, yeah, yeah. she always, she also betrays him. He has to do that because she's betraying him in the way sure. she's acting, right? Right. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that. Martin by Desire created a political world where really the most important actors are the leaders, right? Yeah, and of course. Right now, in how nations interact, like that's not really how we think it works, right? I guess my first point is is that realistic? Because I study like how nations fight and have conflict between each other. And it's interesting to see that actually here is Here's it's all about well one person is going to make the decision. Well, actually, that might not be how that works. And then the second is well, once you have that world, you throw in it the perfect person, the perfect leader, John, and then you see how that interacts. And I guess my my question is also, do you think John is the perfect leader? Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there. I think that leaders do matter. I don't know that. Martin, I don't know if the world that Martin has created adequately makes the point that you're making. Mm-hmm. You know, that actually, politically speaking, it's actually collective forces, mm, social yeah. forces acting in collective that that sort of guide the leaders in many cases, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't know that... I don't know if that's the story Martin's telling, at least in this first book, right? Mm. And so Mar- Martin's more interested in sort of people who were once leaders or people who could have been leaders or people mm. who who uh, might be leaders if they play the if they play their cards right or people who are leaders but they're not, you know, actually there's someone behind them who's really sort of pulling the strings. That's the kind mm. of story that Martin's interested in telling. And he's absolutely telling that story with John's narrative, right? You know, here's this mm. guy who actually has a claim on the throne. He has a, cl- yes. a claim to the throne. He doesn't know it. And maybe because he doesn't know it, maybe this is part of it. But at the same time, he cares about doing the right thing more than most characters in the story. Mm. He's a person with actually a lot of power who's been who's sort of convinced himself that he doesn't have a lot of power. And from one perspective, you could say like, well, yeah, maybe that's a good thing for him because if he believed in his own power, then it would sort of corrupt his decision-making skills. 
he would be making decisions to accumulate more power because that's what power does. But here's this guy that's convinced himself that he has very, very little power. And because of that, he cares. He cares about the what the right thing to do is. You know, he he doesn't want to father a bastard because he doesn't want to put anyone through the life that he's lived. And he wants to take the oath and he wants to live by the oath. And he wants to tell the truth and he wants to lash out against injustice if he sees it. Mm-hmm. Does he do those sorts of things if he was raised like Joffrey? Right? So... I don't know that that's, I don't know if it's true. I think it could be both, both are true. It could be that part of what makes him a good person is that he, he doesn't have entitlement. Mm. And, but then again, you could also go the other way. You could say, well, he actually did have the opportunity for feeling that way. He was, he was raised under the wing of the most powerful man in the North. Sure, his mm-hmm. surely his proximity to power would make him hungry for more power. So you could go either way on this one. I don't know if that quite answers the, the point that you're no, making. No, it absolutely does. And I guess my I guess the question I'm asking that question is because when I've when I read the book, my initial thought was at the same time I was studying how leaders worked and how nations interacted and how regions interacted and how leadership was important and I thought you know maybe we're underestimating leadership because this really feels like to me like a realistic estimation of how political intrigue might work and you know we even study ourselves um Game of Thrones uh, so that again we're not too depressed (laughs) (laughs) and I, I I guess what I was Thing it was okay, so not only is this super interesting, but also gave me hope. Like, there has John to me, there has to be someone like John, right? And so, I guess I, I, I disagree with your point where I think John is a person that is that simply is on purpose someone with an ideal moral compass, right? Which is achievable, right? I mean, you can talk about education, yeah. but I think that's achievable, sure. and maybe we underestimate leadership and so therefore we don't really take as much care of other leaders and i think john is one of those people that actually is an amazing leader and he has a huge impact on the organization he's taking leadership on i think there's a lot to to learn from that right Uh, yeah no i mean i guess if you're going to look at the structure of the night's watch you know mormont Mm -hmm. is sort of this this very top-down kind of guy he actually puts people in, you know, he says that there's, you know, you leave your families behind, but who are, who are the people that are actually in charge? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Amon comes from, comes from wealth and status. And, you know, he, Sir Jeremy Riker, they start, they're still calling him Sir, right? <laughs> so, so his status is actually important and they, they keep their surnames at the wall. So status actually is a big part of the wall, and so it's a very top-down model. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, um, Mormont. I was about to say something stupid. What I was about <laughs> to say is Mormont's willing to listen to these, you know, these green boys, you know, when other people would sort of brush them off. Mm-hmm. Why is that stupid? 
Both the boys are from high, you know, Sam yeah. Well is the son of a great lord, and Jon Snow is the son of Ned Stark, by everyone's estimation. He doesn't listen so, to Pip, does he? He won't listen to Pip. He's going <laughs> to listen to these boys. He's going to give Jon the role of his personal steward and, mm. and groom Jon to be the next Lord Commander. So, I don't know. I think this is... I, I almost convinced myself, but I don't think I ended up convincing myself. Right. The, Martin's story is very antiquated in terms of sort of leadership philosophy. Yes. And I think, I, I don't know if he's done this on purpose or maybe he's done it to antiquate the text or whatever. Um, mm. But there's a reason why most of these POV characters are highborn, I think. Yeah. Uh, because he's have it has a particular view of how the world works, how how great moments in history are affected by the great men of history that kind of thing you know that someone's you... father someone someone's bloodline matters this is this is all very you know neo romanticism this is this is not informed by history from below for the most part would you agree though that um john is the perfect leader do you just think he's just a highborn man that doesn't <laughs> Need to do much like the same way I'm mean I'm um, I'm Samuel I'm just like well he's a useless man you can't do much anymore. <laughs> well of course there's no such thing as a perfect leader right so mm. but I think that he's the way that he's written in the novel is definitely supposed to engender my empathy right it's supposed mm. to retract my empathy like I feel for John he's a, he's a good guy trying to do the right thing of course he's better than Joffrey right. Mm. Get, let's get let's get rid of Joffrey. We'll put someone like John on the throne, and then oh my gosh, he actually has a claim to the throne. So I'm gonna you know I'm gonna throw my weight behind this guy. Mm. Yeah, that's how it's written. I, I think that that's how I'm supposed to read it anyway. Fair enough. So, hey, uh, notable introductions in this chapter. Um, Othor, we never heard him named before, so we see Othor's introduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also see Othor's. Uh, sort of second departure at the end of the right he, actually do we he's because isn't doesn't it end with uh we don't know if he's dead yeah john is sort of praying like i hope he dies hope he dies i hope this kills him right we're not mm. we're not quite sure of the rules of the magic yet we don't know that fire will kill a white exactly uh quite yet but anyway we do see his departure in in a sense um, and actually, to reveal more embarrassing things about myself, I when yeah. that happened, skipped to the next chapter to check that uh, he was dead, like uh, I did with the <laughs> when um, when the when his when Carl Drogo his life was saved. I skipped to the next the next chapter to check that everything was okay because um, <laughs> I can't handle intrigue. You can't handle it. You, you need the closure <laughs> <can't>. of now. <laughs> exactly. You're you're the kind of guy who like. Opens up his gifts at Christmas and then rewraps them because you just can't wait. Um, no comments. If my mom is listening, no uh huh, uh huh. Yeah, I, I got it. Um, also, this phrase "spirit summer" we haven't heard that before. And then there's just a bunch of characters: Jaffer Flowers, Bass the Kennel Master, Hake. Um, these are all named characters that are introduced in this chapter. I couldn't find much in terms of show versus book difference. Did you see anything? 
Um, I actually haven't thought about that. I the one thing that I came up with was that I don't oh, no, think I in the actually. show. Well, is it, go ahead. So in when so when um, I guess the difference is in the show. Ghost is the one that saves Mormont's life, literally, as in he leads John to Mormont's. Um, yeah, right, right, um, right. And he doesn't do that, and he just he just scratches on the door, and then. Well, yeah. So he indicates that there's something wrong behind the door, but then, of course, once they open the door, Ghost waits for for John to to start up the stairs. Yeah. So that's a difference. The other thing is that I, when he confronts Alistair Thorne, he like gets on top of the table, he sprints across the table and kicks a bowl of stew out of his hand, right? Mm. Uh, that's not how it's framed in the show. But other than that, this is a very, this chapter is very much uh, represented in the show. And then uh, notable departures, of course, Othor uh, departs in a way. So, And all of the other um, um, people that have just been introduced but to be dead. How does Martin come up with these names? I mean, famously, he has an unlimited number of characters in his books. And now he's introducing <laughs> names for people that are just dead. I mean, no wonder uh, he can't write any more books. He's run out of names. Well, I do know, I, I have heard him interviewed on this point before. Because it is impressive. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely impressive. Uh, I mean, he claims to just crack open these tomes of history and and find names that are no longer in use. Oh. Uh, but I also know that he will do an homage here and there to someone he likes. Like, I don't know, but I'm pretty certain that Jeremy Riker in here is an homage to Star Trek. Hmm. You know, he, here's this guy who's kind of second in command. You know, he's a knight. Uh, I think, you know, it's it's not spelt like, you know, Commander Riker spells his name, but I see a name like that and I think, yeah, yeah, that's that's a little homage. Like he'll he'll do a, he'll do this with like um like he's really into music. Um he'll name people after musicians. So famously I think that the the Weirwoods are uh, sort of a nod to uh Bobby Weir from The Grateful Dead. Mm. Um, like let us an encyclopedia of everything Martin's ever said, which is very useful for the podcast. But I wonder when, <laughs> when you listen. To I, I'm not. I know. I don't. I don't know nearly as much. I just. Uh, I've seen a few interviews, and so I haven't yeah. seen. I, I mean, you could go. There are archives. There, people have the the. I guess it's the the Spake Martin archive, the So Spake Martin archive. Where people will document everything he's ever said in an interview. Yeah, it's yeah, a little I bit cult. It's a little bit cult like. Uh, so I'm hey, not... do not say that about listenership. Um, he <laughs> takes it back. Don't listen to him, guys. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. 
When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now Steve and I cover Oathbreaker. Here we have the continued training of Bran Stark, who's looking back into Lyanna's narrative. Ramsey continues to strengthen his hold on the North. John presides over the hanging of those who murdered him. And yes, the return with all the implications involved of Rickon. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, Ricky Walnuts is back. <laughs> He's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming I'm supposed to be moved. I think he ate all the walnuts. He gave himself up. So. <laughs> He's like, I'd rather have no skin than no walnuts. <laughs> he was out. It's winter. So it's like there's a limited number of walnuts. And he he basically ate them all. And then he figured, I'm done. <laughs> He's just convincing the uh, uh, OSHA. Look, I, I have... I've got a little sack of walnuts back at Winterfell. I had them in the crypts. Let's just, we'll sneak in. We just can't go back. We'll be in, we'll be out. No one will ever see us. Oh, oh, okay, Osha. You go find me some walnuts then. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's a heist style. Uh... He, killed, he killed his own dire wolf. Or, I think it, maybe there's some in the neck. And that's when they found them. They didn't actually kill the dire wolf when they uh, captured. Oh no! That yeah, Shaggy Dog uh, was Shaggy Dog. He he swallowed a, a walnut. They were <laughs> just Rick trying to get the walnut back. Yeah, it'll pass. <laughs> no, it won't. So he's back, and uh, I'm back. sure that I'm sure that he's gonna bring all kinds of intrigue to the show. <laughs> yeah, but this is this is we've, the 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 very very uh, long con of that of Ricky Walnuts ascending to the Iron Throne is finally starting to materialize. <laughs> I would like Ramsey to finally meet his match. <laughs> it's right. Like Ramsey can break almost anyone, but Ricky Walnuts is just like his nemesis. <laughs> I like to see. I love it. Yeah, that's the metaphor, right? Is Ramsey's just like can't seem to break a walnut open. <laughs> Ricky just looks at it with his bare hands, goes, Pwah! and he's like, so. <laughs> the tables have turned, sir. <laughs> Fast forward to the next episode, and Ramsey's is just getting, like, his fingers cracked one by one by Ricky Walnuts. I'm, I'm glad he's back. I mean, they had to wrap it up somehow. It was not like that Asha Rickon faction could just get lost in the wilderness and we never hear from I mean it could (laughs) it kind of did and I don't again I've since I wasn't you know following the show real time so I wasn't on all the forums and the message boards that were just like if I don't get Rick in in the next three episodes I mean look I lived through the red wedding uh you killed Shireen look I've been very patient on the let me just let me just sum this up for you Steve people really care about Shaggy Dog they don't give a shit about Ricky Walnuts. Right, and now that we know what the fate of Shaggy Dog is, they're like, yeah, skin him. Yeah, so yeah, dismemberment count, Shaggy Dog loses his head. Which, uh, you know what? You gotta name your animals well. 
Because if you name them well, you're going to take them more seriously. If you let your kids name your animals and, you oh, know, yeah. they're going to have shitty names and you're just not going to respect them. Yeah, my uh, my niece had a cat that had like some gold type fur. So its name was Sparkling Gold. That's arguably the worst uh, animal name in the history of animal names. <laughs> what was it? Sparkling what? Sparkling gold. <laughs> yeah. and I, I remember, you know, and she was young and, you know, trying to be a good uncle. And uh, they're like, his name is Sparkling Gold. And I said, I'm not going to call it that. So what did you call it? I just, as far as I was concerned, the cat didn't exist. See, this is what I'm talking about. See? The next thing, that cat's going to end up without a head. And mm-hmm. it's going to be your niece's fault. No one uh, wants to blame that rickon for that no no everybody yeah oh no poor rickon it's like well he should have thought of that when he mailed in the name so what yeah just so curious i mean you had your finger on the pulse of the fandom did anybody anybody give a rip that rickon was back nope i mean there's always (laughs) there's always like one guy there's always one guy that's like you know chimes in and says well what about rickon (laughs) so there's always that and then that, he gets banned from the message board. But, yeah, but I'm telling you, there's like an army of direwolf fans, and Rickon mm. maybe had like little balcony section of sure. fans. So, uh, yeah, no one cares. But it does give Ramsey, well, Ramsey's leverage, got right? Leverage, yeah. Oh, for sure. Because yeah, you think I mean, you know, Sansa's he... gone. He's lost a bit of leverage there. Right. Uh, so now he's got. And you know what? To be honest. I'm okay with this. I'm ex- I'm okay with the trade. Oh sure. No, if you're gonna, if I mean, now Rickon serves a purpose, even if it's not for very long. Right. Um. So that's fine. And uh, and also there's a side, but I would love it if if it came down to it, like <laughs> the the feeling in the Stark family is the same as like the the Game of Thrones message boards, <laughs> like they got Rickon, and <laughs> John's oh. like who? Yeah. Oh, John's- oh Rickon. He's the one that can't walk. No, 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 no. That's Bran. That Rick uh-huh. is the one that likes uh, the walnuts. Um, not ringing a bell. <laughs> no, no, he's the other brother. Other brother of who? Of, of me. <sighs> Was there another bastard? No, he's the youngest Stark. Mm, no, not ringing a bell. You almost have that moment when son, when son, or when Arya is getting smacked around about how many uh, brothers she has. <laughs> it was that she forgot Rick. That's right. That's right. She lies. She lies about the number of brothers, and it was just an honest mistake. She just forgot Rickon. Yeah. Everyone else is like, no, no, no. Do you have another one? I don't think so. Smacks her again. No, I don't. The walnut kid. Mm-mm. No, I'm pretty sure he's a great joy. All right. So overall feelings about episode three, I felt like, I mean, it's it's hard to pay off a resurrection because everyone on the screen is going to act too normally or they're going to like overact. Right. I thought this was brilliant. I thought everyone... Uh, it was great, man. I think that everybody played it with this with a, a a right amount of like reverence and uh and not sure and freaked out. I mean, it's like that's this is the problem with the Jesus narratives. Not enough people are just freaking out. 
<laughs> they're like, he's back. He's going to sing. He's going to sing. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I I tell you what, Steve. If I needed anyone to give me a pep talk after I spent, you know, three days dead, I'd want Davos to give me the pep talk. Davos is like the king of speeches and advice and the whole his, thing. He's always he got the same premise. His premise is, look, I don't know shit. I just let me just preface everything by saying I, I really know. shouldn't be here. I got no fingers. <laughs> you really I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> At some point, you got to be like, you know what, man? I think I think, you know, you give pretty good speeches because you never stop. You never, <laughs> ever stop there's no conversation with you it's just look you're it's either you're, you're either reading poorly or you're or you're pontificating <laughs> wisely but i would want to so, man if i rose from the dead and i was freaking out because you know i rose from the you, dead you know what i feel like every and this is this has been i'm surprised i haven't brought it up yet but every time uh sir davos is doing one of his you know I, look, I don't know. I, I'm just doing my. I'm just doing my best to give you my. It remind. I'm always reminded of the scene on the ice with Ra's al Ghul in Batman Begins when Liam Neeson is just like nonstop advice. Yeah, that's right. Uh, rub yeah. your chest. Rub your chest so you stay. It's like oh, that. Rub your chest moment. It's like you're just like okay, dude. You're smart. Just let me shiver for a second. Yeah, it's really hard to do a training montage, and. We had that a little bit with Bran in the cave. A lot of a lot of Yoda stuff happening with Bran. Mm, yeah, because Yoda's a little bit the same way. Like Yoda never makes small talk, and not well. He is when he's pretending to be just some sort of like little like swamp imp or something. Well, he'll he'll fight your mine, droid mine, for mine, a candy mine. bar. Yeah, <laughs> but I don't think that that's small talk. I mean that's that's just a different sort of narcissism, I think. Yeah, it, it, it's not necessarily wisdom, but it's just like this is why you don't question them. So, so John gets a pep talk from Davos, who basically says, you know, he it's a standard pep talk. I don't know shit, but look, um, why don't we try to get through this day and not try to be horrible people? I mean, that's right. basically like, well, he gives saying. the he gives it well, go fail again, and it's like. That's that's your closer. I mean, the whole idea that that's his closer. Look, no, you're gonna fail again. Let's go do it. That's what I'm saying. I don't want to do actually. <laughs> like that's the thing. You just you argued against me by saying you're not that. Helping. I don't want to fail because I already failed. Well, couldn't, but you get to do it again. Well, that's not. <laughs> and then John, that's why I'm mad. I'm alive. John walks out the front door. And it gets the size of his penis ridiculed by Tormund. Right. Which so is, clearly know. he fails again. Exactly. He walks right. It's like, he's like, man, I just, like, if there was a moment where you're like, I just cheated death. And he goes, you have a little dick. Ah, geez, that's worth coming back for. <laughs> yeah. You got to take that loss. I mean, there's not much you can do. He's talking in front of everyone, too. <laughs> and Torment is just like, and, his, and, and you think that he's like, ah, he's ribbing a buddy. But really, he's like, oh, good. I forgot to say that before yeah. he died. Yeah, Torment was, was saving that little zinger. And he was kind of <laughs> bummed out that he never got to say it while he was alive. I was hoping to say it before I thrust the sword into you. But now I don't know if that'll ever do anything. So, <laughs> All right, we talked a little bit about, all right, so Bran is, is going through his 
uh, you know, Jedi training. You tell me. <laughs> you tell me what he's going through. He's he's getting a little Jedi training. He's in a cave. He's with a well, he's, tree he's man. Looking at the, he's looking at the path. He's looking at all over, right? So yeah. Does he is he is he only in the past? Is that what I'm understanding? Has he gone to like the present at all, <clears throat> or like an alternative present? Or so far, Jedi? we've only seen the past in the show. However, I think that in one of let's see here, season four, there's the scene where he grabs a weirwood tree, like in the middle of nowhere. Right, right. And they show you things that are clearly past, and but things that are clearly future as well. Right. I think he sees oh, that yeah. same image that Danny saw uh, in the House of the Undying of like the, the, the Iron Throne being covered by snow or ash or something like that. Right, right. Fascinating concept that we've seen, like Melisandre is all about visions of the future. Mm-hmm. And then you have this contrast of Bran is really dwelling into the past and and i want and i i don't know enough about obviously what the end goal is or or what it but there is a certain sense of poignancy right i would think in terms of the method that's going on like looking into the past has to have some sort of must have a greater impact on the future well yeah than than knowing the future because you're because the past you can Mm -hmm. like both are now having to be interpreted but at least one you can see where one led to where you are now and that might glean something where you're going forward whereas if you see a glimpse of the future you've skipped over how you got there Mm -hmm. and so you don't really have a clear picture of what it is you're looking at you know because something's because there are things missing well i think you nailed it and i think that the fact i mean it's also it's interesting for these in-world characters, it's also an interesting bit of storytelling because talking about the past of the Starks, it always revolves around Lyanna Stark. Mm-hmm. It's like Lyanna Stark is, you know, riding the horse in a circle at Winterfell. Lyanna is supposed to be up in the Tower of Joy and then Ned's going to try to rescue her. So clearly she's important for the narrative in some way and the showrunners or the storytellers or whatever are trying to kind of hit you over the head with that. Right. But we still don't know. We don't know why. Right. I mean, we don't know why we don't know why all we know is that it was Robert. The whole reason that Robert tried to overthrow the Targaryens in the first place is because she had been kidnapped by this Targaryen guy, Rhaegar. Uh, And so Ned thinks that she's up in like a, a slave up in the Tower of Joy, but then there's an alternative story that maybe she was in love with Rhaegar. So all of this is to kind of say is like the show is kind of beating you over the head with this idea that something about her story is going to be important in the future, right? Right, and obviously we don't know anything because like the, the the people that know anything about her are just you know getting clipped off here, right? I mean, they're getting clipped off. Uh, we're not really sure who else knows this whole secret about. Liana Stark. Mm, okay. Uh, but anyway, seemingly you would you would think that Bran has the wherewithal to find this out, right? Yeah. Um the other thing that in that scene that was interesting was that he can he yelled father. It appears as though he impacted the past. So it's more than a vision. Or if you want to get really timey wimey about this, Steve. He always was in the past. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's that. Okay, so this is going to be... Because uh, Tree Spirit Yoda says that 
the ink is dry. You really, really can't rewrite the past. Suggesting, in other words, that maybe maybe Ned just heard the wind, right? But Brand seems to know better. Right? Yeah. So, but so that's so here's what here, you know, okay. Speaking of going back in time, let's go back in time to the beginning of this podcast when I'm very weary about magic. They've mm-hmm. done a really good job of of warming me to dragons and resurrection mm-hmm. to the point where I don't think we've really talked about any objections about magic for me at this point because they've done a good job of of giving like rules and boundaries and you know hey one well smoke you baby. had a bit of objections to the smoke baby here and there uh yeah but then the idea that like oh he you've only got a finite amount of smoke babies I'm like all right I can live with that you know I can yeah, live so with they've done the a good job with magic yeah for the most so na- so but one thing that I, I I continually have an issue with even in movies I like uh, is time travel uh anytime the space-time continuum is interrupted it creates too many in my opinion like but you can't then how did you get then but like it's a loop then how did it loop mm-hmm. you know so you know if it's the whole the whole thing right so like if you're telling me that that brand either interrupts the either interrupts the past either by having like been there like in some other plane mm-hmm. which gives the ability so he likes okay ed or ned turns around so that voice was there when Ned was that age, but Ned hadn't had him. Like, this is where we get into a, a problem. Like, cause I, cause I doubt that the show can handle, like, this is where I feel like we're Steve, watching Steve, look, look, Steve, as long as you return the infinity stones <laughs> to the place where they were before you took them, everything's fine. That's how it works. I know they, they tried. Boy, Avengers sure did try. You, you start, you start giving me, you give me lost elements and I start to, I start to peel away a little bit. Yeah. Here's how I take this. I think I'm supposed to read this as Ned's walking up the Tower of Joy steps. He hears someone yell, Father. He turns around, sees no one there, thinks, oh, well, that's that's weird, and keeps going. Mm-hmm. And and as people will generally do with things they don't understand, they'll think, ah, it was the wind. They'll, they'll reinterpret it in their memory to make sense of it. They want everything to be coherent. Sure. And so I think what what the three-eyed raven is trying to tell Bran is, look, maybe he heard you or maybe he heard the wind. Who's to say, Either case, in either case, the ink is dry. Whatever happened, happened. happened. Yeah, that's right. Sure, but there's always the concern that like, okay, well, can like, what is, like, because I don't, because I thought these were visions, which is, you know, again, I'm willing to accept, you know, I know it's odd. I'm willing to accept, you know, plugging into a tree mm-hmm. and seeing the past the idea of then plugging into a tree and potentially impacting the past or even just being heard whatever it is like even regardless of whether or not ned can justify it was the wind you make the argument you can make the argument that if in fact it was brand's voice that he heard the butterfly effect is already in in play Mm -hmm. because no matter what right i mean like even if it's even if it's small even if it's nothing you know even if that was enough for him to go hey you know what i wasn't gonna have any kids but why do I feel the need to be a father right now? I don't know. <laughs> well, in any case, Steve, we it's a fun <laughs> thing to talk about. And okay. uh, I just in a, in, a, in a show that has smoke babies and dragons and fire visions and faceless men and zombies, mm-hmm. we're gonna have to incorporate time travel because <laughs> Why do we have to? You just you gave a perfect explanation of why we've got plenty. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> we need it all. We need everything. 
which is why I want Ruse Bolton to be a vampire. And is it's also why I want Varys to be a merman. I need all of it, Steve. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to get whatever they give me. It's just, I, 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 I get it takes me out anytime that there's a time, like a, an interruption of time. It, 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 it took me out. So you didn't like it. You didn't like that. I was, I mean, I think most people are kind of intrigued by it. It's like, Ooh, this is an interesting theme to play. Well, are these people never seen a time travel movie before? Have they, they, not seen they the have. Problem? In fact, I'm one of them. And you know what those people want? They want more time travel movies. I don't understand. Because you, because you know why? Because none of them work. And so you're waiting for someone to make it work. Well, <laughs> all right. If you, I could go back in time, I would stop every time travel movie. From no, no, you wouldn't. You, <laughs> you can't tell me you've never seen a time travel movie that hasn't worked. Yeah. I Looper? Can. Looper's great. Doesn't It doesn't work. Doesn't work. Print, uh, is it primer or primer? I never know how to pronounce that. Mm, doesn't work. See, I, see what I'm going to do now? <laughs> Uh, let me try to think of one that works. Uh, Back to the Future 3. Uh, that's a bad movie. <laughs> that's a bad film. Why not? I thought that they solved the film. problems that were in 1 and 2. <laughs> it's funny because like, as bad as 3 is, um, 2 benefits greatly from the existence of 3 because 2 is pretty bad. <laughs> like 2 is really bad. <laughs> They were they were smart to release three so quickly after two so that we didn't have the real opportunity to go was two was was two a piece of shit. What hasn't been done enough, Steve, is time traveling with cowboys. I really feel like there's a lot that could be done there. Bill and Ted is the only one that's ever worked. (laughs) Bill, so you're you're okay with Bill and Ted? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, so okay, so um, there's uh, John there, leaves the wall, man. He executes, he executes yeah. Ollie and Alistair Thorne. That's a pretty badass ending, man. And just says, My watch is over. Yeah, that was that's kind of like to be honest, that was the moment. Like, I think we all, I don't know about we all, but I know, I know, uh, Heather and I, like, we just kind of were like, Say it, say it, say that watch is ended. <laughs> Hell yeah, like, I don't know, that was pretty. I was pretty okay with it. I know that I was supposed to be moved by all. It was a great episode. This, I just. It really is. It's a real, real season six has kind of been, you know, here we are, what three in and it's uh, uh, it, all of them feel like deeper episodes in a season. You know what? I I like, here's what I like. Feeling rushed. You can tell it's going well when like I had, I had somewhat of a problem with Davos's play to lock himself in the room. Uh Uh-huh. And you had some somewhat of a problem with the whole timey wimey business in this episode, mm-hmm. but in both cases, it didn't ruin the episode. It was sort of like, like you know, no, it, I'm I'm still in. I, I don't... Yeah. I'll move on. I'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> that, I could do uh, without Sam throwing up. Oh man, I as <laughs> I laugh so hard. I love watching people throw. You up. love it, huh? That's interesting. Oh, yeah, because I just think there's just got to be tons in there. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's all. I mean, it He's was just great. going to be a never-ending geyser of vomit. He did a fa- I, I, he did a great job of conveying. Now you don't get seasick, right? Uh, yeah, no, I, I get it. I take Dramamine. It, it depends on how choppy it is. Well, I like it's great because he he rallies 
to give a speech and, and, <laughs> and, and then as soon as the speech is over, he just yaks. And I'm like, dude, that's it. That is it. That's how, that's how you are in those situations. And sometimes See, that's like, how Davos trained all of those years at sea. <laughs> he was giving speeches when he was really seasick. And if you can give a speech when you're seasick, then you've mastered the art of monologue. Right. And that's the thing is if you can give a speech when you're seasick, you're not going to get seasick. As soon as you're done giving a speech, you throw up. So if you make that speech yeah. a little redundant and maybe say the same thing <laughs> a few more times to a few more people, uh, the whole time, like, man, this guy won't shut up. And it's like, but he, he didn't throw up once. Well, now that he's on land, he can just monologue whenever because he's not seasick anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's just like, I can do this forever and not vomit. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'll include a short clip of my conversation with Danielle Alessi. Danielle was a guest last week, and I got a lot of great feedback about her. I had an emailer ask about how math education worked in the medieval period. And so I read that email to Danielle, and I think we at least arrived at the start of an answer. I wanted to ask you a question... And uh, I, I guess I'm kind of putting you on the spot because I probably should have <laughs> given you a, a little bit of alert uh, on this, but but I think you might be able to help. Sure. This is from Leah. And of course, if you don't have an answer for Leah, we can always, you know, point her in the right direction or something like this. Okay. I'm really curious about how people learned math in the Middle Ages, and I hope you might talk about it. <laughs> I was rewatching some old episodes that included Davos and Stannis talking about the numbers of people and ships and their armies, and I found myself wondering at what point in his life Davos, a man who never learned to read, learned math. <laughs> Obviously, a smuggler needs to know the basics of finance, but who taught him? So I've heard a lot of discussions about literacy in ancient times or lack thereof, mm -hmm. but I wonder how many people were taught these more practical skills compared to our modern pedagogy. Oh, wow. What a question. It's I... a great question. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Leah. And I'm crossing my fingers, hoping that Professor Alisi will be able to answer this for us. Wow. Um, it, you know, I have never really gotten that question before. That's super interesting. Um, I'm sure there's there's so much uh, more research on this than what I have mm. uh, to, to offer. Um, so I kind of hesitate to, to, to talk vaguely about what somebody has done a ton of work on. Um, but I, I will say that, you know, someone like Davos wouldn't be really learning math in any formal setting. Mm. Um, it would be kind of practical skills gained on the job. Um, and, and that's something that we would expect to see more. In the university level, the clergy, for people going to university, they would be doing a little bit more um, advanced training, mm -hmm. but still nothing like what we would, would think about now. I don't, I, don't, I don't know of many medieval calculus mm -hmm. classes, for mm -hmm. example. Um, a lot of that 
that work and that knowledge was happening in the medieval uh, period, but not necessarily in medieval Europe, uh, maybe in in places that had more Islamic influence in the Byzantine Empire. Sure. They were they were working in more in some of these areas, um, physicians, people at university, people in the clergy again, um, or, or, or just other philosophers, people working in, in science and math in ways that we don't see so much in mm-hmm. medieval Europe um, until a, a little bit later on um, when that that knowledge kind of comes back and gets recovered right yeah contact i was i did a little search for this a couple weeks back and i just encountered so leah you can look this up like put this in your google search engine math history saint andrews education medieval it's just a short article but basically the authors of this little article Mm. o'connor and robertson are basically they're saying is that upper crust folks who could afford it could hire like a math tutor that would focus on things like bookkeeping. Yeah. As far as like someone like Davos, yeah, probably not. It seems like probably not. And the exception is that this was an area of research among monks. Like Mm -hmm. Like if you were at a monastery... You might train in numbers, yeah. Uh, so that would be a way for sort of a commoner to be exposed to this sort of thing. Yeah, and we would also see, you know, and I don't know that this would apply to like a smuggler like Davos, but mm-hmm. um, guilds, right? There would right. be some tra- they they pass the knowledge down. Like I said it's 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 known practically, is learned practically from working in the field. Right. learning what you need to know um not really the advanced math we might be thinking of but then that would get passed down um you, it, it trained right as mm-hmm. you train as an apprentice and so on you learn these skills so um and yeah for the upper class if you said there would be tutors people who were learned in these things but commonly um no there wouldn't be some sort of like universal math education at this time yeah and it's a little bit like literacy in that you know even if you were illiterate, you could probably write your name. Mm-hmm. And let's say you're working construction, you could probably write down like a materials list. Mm-hmm. So if you were a soldier, you might learn just by being on the field. Yeah. That that looks like about 2000 tenths. You know, you can kind of guess just because you're learning in a practical way, I suppose. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you. I know that I sprung that on you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think it's an interesting question. Oh, it is. Because I, yeah. I think that she's totally right. We tend to focus on literacy as sort of a litmus test for educational prowess during this period. Oh, yeah. And when you think about, you know, some of the structures that still stand today, the magnificent cathedrals Mm. built in that time, I mean, they knew something, right? They knew architecture, they knew the mathematics needed for that type of thing. I was just teaching on this the other day, Justinian building the Hagia Sophia in the Byzantine Empire. I mean, the, the, 
the work, the architecture work that went into that to create those the spaces that brought in all the light, you know, right. I mean, that that came from a Greek architect who who knew math, right, from some of the older training. Right. So um, they, they definitely knew yeah. things. It's just how much does that trickle down? Yeah, so the guilds are really passing on practical knowledge. It's yeah. very specific to... You know, what's needed exactly that's right mm-hmm. that's right yeah well thank you for that absolutely so my thanks again to danielle if you're interested in seeing what else danielle is doing you can follow her on twitter at danielle underscore alessi that's a-l-e-s-i and that is all for this week